The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation. Remember your training and fly the airplane. But you knew that. The scotch level is sufficient. No, no, I haven't had any scotch in the house in over a week. Uh, got, uh, got a couple of bottles of a uh, seasonal Leinenkugels. Oh, uh, okay. Which I've got to look at or I'll screw it up. What? Yeah, well, uh, you got to look at it Fireside Nut Brown. Fireside Nut Brown, it cool. says. Fireside Nut Brown. Okay. Yep. And what's that like? Is it a... <laughs> it's funny, but it kind of fits its label. It's kind of uh, got a nutty, hoppy taste to it, and it's uh, a, a nice, uh, a nice, uh, oh, you know, espresso chocolate brown. Hmm. But it's not a heavy, like a Guinness, like a, a stout. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to see if they have that down here. So our friend Steve Tupper... Uh, likes to say that it is every pilot's dream to be riding back in the cabin of or the of a uh, of a commercial airliner, and have the uh, <clears throat> the captain come on the intercom and say, uh, "Are there any private pilots on board?" And uh, they did this just this past week on a uh, on an Air Canada flight, and there were no pilots on board, or at least none that would uh, fess up. And so as a result, an Air Canada flight attendant, who apparently is a, uh, I think it says she's a commercial pilot, uh, Mm -hmm. got a chance to move into the uh, right seat and assist with uh, getting this airplane on the ground. Uh, What You guys seen this story? Yeah, yeah. Um, Commercial instrument rated pilot, uh, instrument rating wasn't current, um, and a road road shotgun. They had to... uh, Remove the first officer from the flight deck. You know, um, yeah, I know. You know, you talk about burying the lead. All right, that's yeah, the, yeah. Um, like, oh, by the is, way, you know, the first officer went nuts in flight. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't know if I'd go quite that far. It's, it's not really clear if, if he had an episode or uh, if he just got confused. Um, you know, was it a diabetic uh, kind of thing or was it a? A full-blown uh, emotional uh, problem. Uh, don't know. Well, the, uh, the Dublin AP lead says an Air Canada co-pilot having a mental breakdown had to be forcibly <laughs> removed from the cockpit, restrained, restrained, and sedated. And a stewardess with flying experience helped the pilot safely make an emergency landing. And an Irish investigation yeah. concluded Wednesday. That's pretty definitive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that's that's certainly. I, I, I just want to see more than just one story on on this to really get the true flavor of it. I, I have a I have a tough time thinking that someone got through all the exams and all the tests and everything like that for however long uh, it took him to get right seat on that aircraft, and then just had an episode. So I, I, I'm just a little skeptical of uh, of all that. But hey, you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah, yeah. Here's my my favorite line from well, not my favorite, but one of the lines that jumps out at me here is it says the pilot concluded that his colleague was now so belligerent and uncooperative. That's the quote: belligerent and uncooperative that he couldn't do his job. Now, see, by that standard, Jeb, you would have uh-huh. thrown Dave out of half of the flights that uh, the time well, that he was on. That, in, there in is there. that. See, so oh, I, snap. I, 
I, I, I have to I have to come at this with you know one or two grains of salt. That's right. Uh, Anyways, well, so uh, so that was a brush with greatness. The pilot got a chance. The uh, the uh, attendant flight attendant got a chance to get up in the cockpit, uh, which uh, that's the only thing that Steve Tupper hasn't done yet is get a chance to uh, to save the day on a commercial. And, and he's you know and he's still a young man. He's working at it. I'll tell you, he's he's checking <laughs> off all the boxes. No question about it. Hey, welcome folks to episode number one hundred and ten of Uncontrolled Air. Space, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday evening, November 30th, 2008. And uh, I want to say hi to the gang. They're here with me this evening in the virtual hangar. Uh, first of all, one of those voices out there is Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How you doing? Oh, not not an ounce of belligerence in me tonight. Uh, <laughs> so I shouldn't have to be removed from the uh, from the hangar for uh-huh. the podcast, okay. at least for the duration. Now, speaking of getting removed from the hangar, we've got our fingers crossed tonight. Uh, for those who've been listening to the podcast over the last two or three months or so, they know that we've been struggling with Dave's internet connection, and uh, and <laughs> a miracle of miracles, they. F- maybe figured out what was wrong with your connection give us the give us the five you know, the 15 second version of what's going on here uh unnoticed obsolescence yeah. uh i mean that's really the nub of it apparently uh somewhere in the recent past like the last three months or so uh my c- cable provider upgraded their system to uh, a point where the signal strength is much weaker i detect and uh, the amplification required by the modem is greater, and there's a bottleneck in the old modem. And anyway, it turns out that that apparently was a problem because after giving me a uh, a new modem uh, a few days before Thanksgiving for the pittance of 1995 to pick it up and put it in myself, uh, I haven't had a dropout, a cutout. Uh, we've been running two computers over the wireless network simultaneously with this machine uh, on which I'm talking, and everything's been copacetic. So I'm optimistic, and we didn't feed the computer system any turkey this weekend, so it shouldn't have the, shouldn't uh, nodding off. the yeah. right the nodding off problem like the speaker might. Well, like I said, cautiously optimistic here. It's sounding a lot better already, so uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Also in the virtual hangar this evening is Jeb Burnside talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Spiffy, Jack. How about yourself? I'm doing good. You've been busy. You, now, now I was watching the shuttle landed today, this afternoon, uh, and it had to land out in California because they say the weather is awful in Florida. It, but, but you were flying. Un, Unfreaking believable. I, I flew back today from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Went up. Girlfriend and I went up there for the holiday, and uh, five hours with the engine running. To get here from South Carolina, you know it's going to be a bad well, what, day. What do you think it should have been? Should have been three three fifteen. Okay. Um, wow. You know it's going to be a bad day when you're doing seventy two point seven knots in Ow. the climb in the climb out yeah. ground speed, uh-huh. and you're indi- and you're indicating one hundred and twenty. All right. Well, oh, that's, snap. That's not a good. That's yeah. not a good day. So. Uh, yeah. So I, I I spent like three hours doing like 100, 102, 105 knots. Um, there's just there's this huge weather system. It's from the Gulf of Mexico up into the up into New England, Jack, up off off the coast. Yeah, it's definitely up here. It's nasty wet, uh, nasty day. Thunderstorms and and they had tornadoes and crap around Miami. Um, you know, I was just fighting all that. Um. Uh, trying to get back here, ended up uh, 
going way west, of course, and then uh, um, getting behind this this front, and then cutting, finding a soft spot. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a clear yeah. hole anywhere between um, um, the Gulf and, and New England anywhere, but I found a soft spot and and well, bounced you, through that and uh, got had, home. You had two more options than the shuttle did. You know, first off, you could use a lot more airports. Uh-huh. Once you know, once it got on your side of the country, and second, you could go around. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Although apparently someone has discovered this, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 trick to this. We'll come back to that later on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> and also joining us for the first time in the virtual hangar is uh, is a, a friend of Jeb's, an acquaintance of Dave's, and and a new acquaintance of mine is Jennifer Whitley. Hi, Jen. How you doing? Hi, Jack. Just great. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Now, now, Jen has been on a list of people that we wanted to get into the into the hangar and on the podcast since the very, very earliest days of, of this podcast, and uh, for various reasons, most having to do with time zone conversions, uh, uh, Jen, I wasn't able to do this. I should say that Jen, Jen is talking to us from one of my favorite cities that I've never visited, Austin, Texas. Well, welcome any time, Jack. Come on down. I, I would love to. I would love to. I've heard that it's a really cool place, and uh, oh, yes. one of these days I'm going to make it over there. But uh, yeah, so we weren't able, never able to schedule it and work it out, and uh, and then we've been watching for a, d- a day. We we typically record this podcast on a weekday evening, which makes it really difficult for folks towards the west because it becomes in the middle of the work, the you know the business day. Um, but today we're recording on Sunday, so I figured I'd give it a shot, and and fortunately you were available. That's great. Yeah. Um, I, I just also I just like to welcome Jen. Um, Jen and I have worked together and known each other for at least <laughs> ten years. Ten years, I think, Jeb. It, yeah. it has, yeah. Um, um, Jen is also, um, I think, without a doubt, the longest serving regular member of Avweb staff. I've been around. I've been with them since 1998, and of course, they uh, yep. started in 1995. So practically. Oh, no. Um, um, I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden, and I just got an email from him earlier. Um, But the guy who hired you, I succeeded. Um, Dave Ritter. uh, Doug Ritter. Doug Doug Ritter. Thank you. Doug hired you. That's yeah, right. Doug yeah. hired you, and I, either Doug, or, nobody's remembering him. Or <laughs> no, he's not listening to this, is he? Thanks, Doug. <laughs> Doug really did. Uh, Doug, Doug gave me a shot, and I yeah. really, really and, appreciate and, and that. And you, you, you stepped up to the plate, and and uh, you know, Adweb's been through a lot of evolution over the last several years, but uh, you stuck it out, and you're still there, and that says a lot about you. And uh, if anybody is listening to this and has been kept keeping up with Adweb. Um, Jen is is one of the people responsible for its consistency yeah. over the years, and uh, hats off to her. I want I want Jen to tell us a little bit more about her aviation background and situation. But first, let me say that I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from Dover, New Hampshire, where it's rainy and snowy and nasty. And uh, but I've been sneaking a lot of flying into the occasional uh, uh, sunny days up here. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. I'm going to bore you to guys to tears with all this flying that I'm doing lately. But uh, we'll come back to that. So Jen, welcome to the uh, virtual hangar. And uh, typically, when a person visits us for the first time, we'd like to hear a little bit about their situation. So maybe, and I probably should have warned you about this, but if you could give us just a little bit of a, of a you know, briefing on how you got involved with aviation, what kind of flying do you do, uh, what kind of airplanes do you fly, things like that. Tell, tell us how you got involved in all this stuff. Well, sure, Jack. Yeah, um, I am an instrument-rated private pilot. I've been flying for about... 
10 years, I think. It started as a stray thought. I was driving down a country road. I saw a little airplane flying above. I was like, hmm, I bet the view is pretty nice from up there. Out of the hundred of stray thoughts you must have in any given day, by the time I got home, I was like, I've got to know. I've got to know, you know. So I went for a discovery flight, and I've been hooked ever since. Um, I'm a aircraft owner. I co-own a Warrior, an Archer, and a Cessna Cardinal RG with the 27 other pilots of the Shandell Flying Club here in How Austin. Cool. The Flying Club, it, that, that sounds like a lot of pilots to people who are co-owners or, or sole owners, right? mm-hmm. but in, in practice, it works out very well, and it helps keep flying affordable if you can actually put those two words together sure. in the same sentence, right? We do that um, all the time here. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah <laughs> really? <you're right>. okay. <laughs> now, of those three airplanes, is there one that you prefer, or do you kind of really? I really fly them all equally. I, I got my instrument rating in my Warrior, so um, you know she's near and dear to my heart. The Cardinal RG is a great, great airplane, very roomy, very comfortable cross-country airplane. I like to volunteer for Angel Flight. I think you guys are aware of um, mm-hmm. the great work being done by Angel Flight. And the Cardinal RG is, a, is, is great for patients. It's easy to get in and out of. You know, it's a very comfortable cross-country airplane. So I have probably equal time in all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, those huge, huge doors. Door. Yeah. 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 Very wonderful. Um, I stay local in my local uh, GA community. I'm an officer of my flying club. I served on the board of the Texas Aviation Association and work toward protecting airports, helping to open airports, bringing GA services to airports, and and stuff like that. And and I stay active out there on the web, uh, listening, of course, to the wonderful Uncontrolled Airspace podcast on a regular basis. Oh gosh! Oh. Uh, <laughs> wow, that well, you were you were and you were doing so well until you got that. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. That, that makes three people. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. All our moms and Jen. Uh, you so, guys do a great job. This is episode one hundred and ten. Yeah, Very I know. Impressive. We you know we, we're, yeah. we're going to get it right eventually. I don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah. So Jen and my I guess my last question, not my last question, but uh, uh, for now my last question, uh, what is your home airport? <laughs> I am based at KAUS. That's Austin Bergstrom International Airport. That's our uh, Class C commercial airport. Uh-huh. Austin. What's it what's it like? Is it uh, so it's a Class C, so it's a pretty big airport and uh, is it big. very GA friendly or unfriendly? Uh-huh. <laughs> Not really. (laughs) Not really. We really have had to, that gets back to my uh, membership in the Texas Aviation Association, we've had to fight really hard to get them to build us tea hangers and get us um, general aviation services. Our controllers are great. I would love to say that. Uh, You'll Mm -hmm. find that out if you ever fly in here. But uh, we are opening a new airport here in Austin, which is very exciting, Um, after about... Ten years of struggle after we closed Robert Mueller and Austin Executive. We are I was opening just sitting here. I was going yeah. to ask, wasn't it Robert Mueller that they closed uh, down? Because nobody's really going to miss Robert Mueller. Yeah, uh, uh, famous <laughs> last words. I know, uh, but we are. Yeah, we're, we're one of the only major metropolitan areas that doesn't have a designated general aviation reliever airport. You know, so we are opening a new airport here. It's uh, the construction is underway now, so we'll see. Um, 
what my club decides to do. I think uh, we we may move ourselves out of there, but uh, I enjoy I enjoy Bergstrom. It's 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 fun to to play with the big boys and hold your own there. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that living here in Wichita, uh, I got my ticket after dinking around with alternative aviation, as you call it, for quite a long time, uh, finally broke down and decided to get a license and bought a little Cherokee 140 to do it in. And lovely little airport about 30 minutes east of uh, the the house, uh, Augusta Municipal. Belongs to Augusta, Kansas, which is actually another eight miles or so east of where the airport is. It's almost as close to Wichita. Uh, But it was lovely being able to hop over and do heavy-duty tower instrument and yeah. uh, insertion work with business jets and airliners at uh, Wichita Mid-Continent. Uh, you know, not to mention having 873 different instrument approaches depending on <laughs> which way the wind blows and who's serving the barbecue that night. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true of Bergstrom as well. And, and many of my club pilots are instrument rated or instrument students, so it's it's great to get that, that kind of practice in. Yeah, that's great. Well, welcome to the to the hangar, and uh, Thank you. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing uh, what you have to say, what your perspective is on all, on a lot of this stuff, and uh, and hear your stories. So uh, let's jump into this here because uh, we got a particularly big list this week, um, David. Let's, <laughs> let's get this out of the way quickly. Um, I don't know, I don't know what it is you're referring to here, but you made a note that you wanted to correct something that you had uh, perhaps mentioned in the past. Yeah, What's when last about? we gathered, wasn't that on or around November 18? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Okay, and I was really hot under the collar about the Department of Homeland Security uh, issuing a final rule earlier that day to implement its uh, proposal for the Electronic Advanced Passenger Information System, known as eAPIS, which is not a little bug that you keep off your roses. That's another kind of FAA problem. Uh, eAPIS which requires GA pilots to file passenger names and other information to the government officials and get approval before crossing into the U.S. from outside the U.S. And the proposal didn't allow for any mode of communications other than a web page, an Internet connection. And the... uh, consensus from the GA community was that that was really inflexible and insufficient and unworkable because there are a lot of GA airports not too far across the U.S. border where you may not get the best, if any, internet service. And wouldn't it be nice if they had some alternatives? Well, in the rush of the rule coming out and the news stories coming out and getting ready for the podcast, everything I saw said that the Department of Homeland Security had implemented the rule as proposed Mm -hmm. with the web page portable. As I found out a couple of days later, they also provided uh, some windows to use other modes of communication, notably faxing or cell phones, and even going so far as to file for a return trip. For example, if you were going into Mexico or Canada and coming back with the same people, a family trip, vacation, business trip, you could pre-file the return before you went in, into Canada. And uh, then if you needed to change it, uh, you just needed to give them advance notice. So I was a little bit too hard on the good old Department of Homeland Security. Apparently, occasionally, they listen, and I failed to notice. So my my bad. 
uh, let's hope that they listen as equally well don't, with don't the large security program and just kill that turkey. Dave, don't be too hard on yourself because this is this is one of the few occurrences in DHS's history where they have actually listened uh, to the general public. You so, could say a guy had turned into a bit of a Pavlov's dog. You know, you hear yeah. the DHS implements a rule and you start to salivate because you know that they're screwing around with us. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, just clarify one thing for me. This particular rule, is this a proposal or is this a rule that's been put in place? Well, it was a final rule as of uh, uh, November 18. Okay. All right. <laughs> Uh, okay. I'm sorry. It becomes effective December 18. Uh, okay. They published the uh, uh, final rule as a final rule on the 18th, uh, effective December 18th, and GA pilots have until May 18th to uh, set up uh, and and comply. So. Okay. Well, good. I mean, I guess that's some comfort. I still am not wild about a lot of these new quote unquote security. Well, Things. Not suggesting that it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, no, we're it's, not suggesting it's a good thing. I still think it's it's uh, it's, it's it's voodoo security. Uh, and for the for the record, uh, in all the years of its existence, uh, and for all the proposals that it's put forward, uh, the Department of Homeland Security and its and its baby child, the Transportation Security Administration, have never really answered the question of how any of its security proposals for GA would prevent somebody from using an airplane for an attack, other than making them feel better that they're doing something useless, though it may be. So uh, we still, on the record, have that same feeling about this. There's nothing in there that would prevent anybody coming into the country from outside from eventually using the airplane for a weapon, ineffective though that might be. Uh, So we're still waiting for that first time when they propose something that actually would have some meaningful impact. And when I say propose something and have meaningful impact, grounding us forever is not on the list. (laughs) Okay. All right. Careful. Don't put any ideas in their heads. Yeah, right. Well, they had those ideas before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, David, you called our attention to an interesting new online uh, pilot briefing tool that uh, that is kind of interesting. Tell us a little bit about this thing. Well, I, I could tell you just about that much about it because I don't know a whole lot more about it than to say it's a uh, pilot briefing tool. Very simple structure, free on the net, uh, PICbrief.com. Uh, you put in an airport, nav aid, fix, intersection, uh, and it will give you the information on that. Then you can get METAR and TAP information for that destination. Uh, pretty simple and straightforward. It's like uh, if I type in ICT right now, uh, this is Sunday night, it's going to tell me, going to give me all the communications frequencies, the location of the airport, uh, fuel that's available, the FBOs, the runways, uh, 10,301 by 150, 7301 by 150, 6301 by 150. Anybody that listens to this should be able to land on one of those. Uh, It also shows an airport diagram, uh, has comments, uh, then links to all the instrument approach procedures. And there's even a live radar picture that came up and the uh, current meteorological conditions and the terminal area forecast. Just plug in a number. Yeah. It is kind of, it's nicely concise. Um, the one of these that I always use is, uh, is I believe it's AirNav. Um, yeah. And, uh, AirNav doesn't have live radar. Uh, it doesn't, uh, 
give you the uh, it gives you some of the charting or at links or at least links to some of the charting. Um, it also AirNav also does not give you a uh, um, miniaturized or reduced size uh, map of all the active airmets and sigmets, of which tonight there are a bunch on the east yeah, coast. Yeah, a bunch. Yeah, well, there were a couple of high was. The controller was reading off a couple of high was things, and I flipped over to the VOR frequency to kind of listen in, and and they were they were going from basically Presque Isle to Key West. Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah. Well, the well, nice thing the about cool this things about this uh, PIC brief, guys, um, I think is it's optimized for the mobile yeah. phone. Yeah. I was wondering about that. I was actually tempted. I usually hide my my iPhone on the other side of the room so that if it no, rings, it call it up on your iPhone. I'm looking at it right now, and it, does it fit nicely? Yeah. Oh, very nicely. Okay. You know, uh-huh. and you can you can call up the approach charts and everything, and you have to do a little bit of scrolling and everything. Uh, the interestingly, the the iPhone version has some additional features that I don't see here on the web. For instance, you can call up. A mobile optimized version of the FARs of all things for the next time you're sitting around the hangar debating some minutia of uh, VOR checks or what have you. You know, you can uh, uh-huh. call up Part 61, Part 91, et cetera, et cetera. It's very nice. Hmm. Well done. It, yeah, it is very well done, and it looks deceivingly simple when you yes. get to the yeah. initial page. It's like, is this all there is? Right. And then you click on the the uh, length that you want, and I'm looking at a little low, I don't know, on my display, two and a quarter by two and a quarter inset, that's the live weather radar. And if I click on that, it takes me to the, uh, to the uh, where was it, National Weather Service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, National Weather Service site for Wichita. Uh, the same thing with the airport diagram, brings it up full size. Uh, this section of the IFR chart that shows the Wichita VOR and the radials coming into it and all the surrounding airports, uh, all the instrument approaches, uh, links to those, departure procedures, minimums, alternate minimums. Uh, and in this, like Jeb was pointing out, the, the very bottom is a little map of the United States with all the Holy crap! Weather warning. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, we're gonna die. You can also you know, I look. In- I look at this and man, it's it. And, and well, and looking at the weather for uh, Wichita, what's happening here outside my office, knowing how cold it is on the walk from the house to the office, it's like I'm so glad I'm not flying tonight. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> Jeb. It also lets you type in a, a tail number. Um, Jeb, I'll bleep it out. Tell me what your tail number is, though. I want to type it in. Nine nine four. And, uh, yeah, there you are. Oh, boy, I'm telling you, that's where you live. I guess this stuff makes me nervous. I, you know. Yeah, I should probably change that or to let me know. This is actually going to come up in a minute. We're going to talk about another story here. But uh, do, before we move on, does anybody know of a service like this on the net where you can look up a CFI by their number? By their number? Yeah. By their number. I was I was looking through my logbook the other day and I was looking I was looking at some of my old CFIs and I was kind of curious what's up with them and what's going on and I tried Googling. That their number it used to be their social security number of course everybody's Yeah I was wondering whether you whether the, you know cuz you can uh, obviously you can look up end numbers you can look up you know airports yeah. all kinds of information that you can, can look up I was wondering if you, you CFIs. can look up pilots by name on the FAA airman Right Yeah maybe that's the way to do it anyways yeah. 
PICbrief.com. It's kind of an interesting tool, and uh, and 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 like I think the key here is that if it's optimized for portable devices, that's kind of a, a cool thing. Yeah, that's uh, something that I wouldn't have picked up on as readily. Uh, what what clicked me about it was it's this little simple two window homepage, and you put in the airports you want and everything that you'd get from flight service without the wait time. Yeah. I I think it's probably important, though, to point out that this is not considered an official briefing source, right, Right. guys? You know, the DUOT and DUOTs are considered official briefing sources, so I definitely always do the the, the, move of of getting official briefing. And yet another key about those is that not only are those official briefings, but those briefings are logged. So yep. that yeah. there's a record that you got a briefing, yeah. um, you know, for better or worse, that may or may not serve you. But, uh, but you know, you, you enter your tail number and your pilot ID and so forth and uh, get your briefing. And, and if they ever need to, they can go and check and see what you saw uh, or didn't see. And so... Uh, yeah. I, I always do that. You know, I, I, su- I like to supplement my briefing with, with sites like PICbrief.com and, and the other great information that's available on the web. But uh, I definitely... Council pilots to get the official briefing as well. Yeah. Good, yeah. Point. Good point. One of the one of the newer products out there that we I don't think we've talked about. AOPA's had for a number of years a uh, Jeppesen-based um, online uh, f- uh, flight planning f- uh, front end. Basically, you download a, the front end and you use it on your on your home machine. And if you have an internet connection, it'll it'll draw in weather and graphics and and map TFRs and things like that. They've recently um, done away with that. I won't say done away with that. I presume it still works, but they've put everything on a web, on their website. And the AOPA Internet Flight Planner, A it's AOPA right. org slash AIFP. And it's a um, basically a Java based application. It's a little sluggish right now. It's still in beta. Uh, but I've been using it and it's it's uh, fairly intuitive. Um, uh, it does everything pretty much on the same screen. In other words, if you go out and get a weather briefing, it can overlay uh, Nextrad, it can overlay uh, winds aloft arrows, barbs, and, and stuff like that. Um, you can file flight plans from it. I used it for my pre-flight today and uh, um, file a flight plan kind of you know kind of as a test because I usually just pick up a phone call flight service. Um, but follow the flight plan with it, and everything was there, and, and no issues. So, I mean, it, the service definitely works, and, and as I say, it's just something new that's out there, and I don't think we've talked about it before. Yeah, it is cool. I was playing with it a, while, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, although you mentioned that it's beta, I mean, it is literally beta. They say don't use this for, for uh-huh. flight planning yet, so it's... Well, everybody it, says that. Yeah, I know, but... You know, Duats doesn't say that, and uh, and and uh, and AOPA's their their non jeppesen based uh, flight well, planner is is more official and, and it, it is it, in fact a, a a front end for Duats Duats because right. the exactly. AOPA thing it on a separate screen will will you when you sign on to it it, it asks you for your um, your right. login ID and everything like that for duots and and uh, that's what i've been getting it from yeah uh, yeah so. just to yeah i just for completeness i don't know completely just because i want to mention it um another site that i find myself using a lot these days um not nearly as sophisticated and full featured as the ones we've been describing but nevertheless i like it a lot and that's skyvector.com <laughs> skyvector um basically gives you a a a, a, a web based 
front end to the uh, section, well, not just sectionals, I use it mostly for sectional charts, but you can get uh, en route charts and all sorts of other charts. And, uh, you know, not only will it give you kind of a quick reference to probably not the latest sectional, but at least gives you an idea of what, where things are and, you know, relationships and so forth. Um, most airports have weather information overlaid on the maps, on the chart, so that you can, uh, you can see what the latest uh, METARs are and so forth. Um, it also has crude but kind of useful uh, flight planning now, where you can actually draw lines between points on the charts and get information about headings and uh, and uh, distances and so forth. And so I, I use SkyVector a lot for quick and dirty planning. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of resources out there. And, and um, I know Jack, you at one point talked about is it FlightPlan.com or or uh, there's I, another I, site, kind of a fuller service site. I, I presume it still works. Um, I, I, I use just aviation, it's aviationweather.gov. Yeah, I go to that one a lot too. Yeah. I go there a lot. They've got, you know, links to, they've got some very neat Java tools that you can only find there. Um, they've got, um, uh, you know, direct links to all the, uh, Nextred sites around the country. Um, all the weather there, of course, is, is government approved, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's just by accessing the site and looking at a few things doesn't demonstrate um, to the satisfaction of the NTSB hearing that you got a weather briefing. Right. But it's it's a great – let me go look at this real quick before I, I blast Jeb, out of here. Jeb, you're talking about uh, aviationweather.noaa.gov, no. right? Well, it's, it's, it comes up aviationweather.gov on my machine. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, there sure. might be an aviation weather. Uh, I mean, it might be the same. Let me talk. Ah, uh, no, that's the same thing. I just had an old. Yeah, it it has about three or four different domains, and it kind of you basically end up in the same place. Um, yeah. um, the one I go to, it's called, it, and I think it's the same one you're referring to. You end up in the same place. It's ADS. It's the, it's the same. ADS. Exactly. Used to be the old ADS site. That's yeah. exactly right. right. And you know what? Uh, There's actually too much information there. It's hard well, to find things. Can't be. It, for really, at the ADDS site or yeah. the aviation ADDS. weather? Well, the, 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 the aviation weather, the NOAA site, basically. <laughs> They're I looking about that, the same right yeah, now. I don't know if there's too much information there. I, I've, I, it's kind of my one-stop shop. If, if all of a sudden I'm going somewhere tomorrow and I want to know what I'm going to be looking at, I go there first. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if, and it's probably the case that you use it more often than I do, and as a result, you kind of... Have, yeah. You know your way yeah. around better. I, I always struggle with. Okay, I saw this here last time. Where was it? I can't find it because it's uh. got like it's got like twelve tabs along the top and fifteen items down a sidebar, and it's just like I, I find it, it. It's got great information. There's lots of good stuff there, but I find it hard to navigate sometimes. We're gonna make I, an instrument. We're gonna make an instrument pilot out of you yet, Jeff? Yeah, I know. I actually, oh. I, I signed up to. Uh, they're gonna do a ground school up at Sanford, and I signed. Woohoo! Outstanding. Right. I mean, we haven't actually. It hasn't actually been scheduled yet. They're trying to find. An enough people to to do it and uh um, oh goody more blind pilots and given my uh, uh given my weird travel thing i don't know if it's going to even work out but uh but i signed up and said i'm interested and we'll see what happens with that uh we better move on here yeah uh so here's this interesting story and i i'm not sure if i know what to make of this story other than it's interesting and this is so um in the news over the past week or so um as part of the fact that the economy is all going to hell in a handbasket is uh uh, oh, man. Uh, members of uh, leaders of a couple of the big car companies went to Washington asking uh, for money, uh, which is not an unusual situation. <laughs> a fair amount lately. Um, 
And so, you know, everybody's kind of, yeah, well, I don't know if we can give anybody some more money. But, but the thing that came out of this story immediately after they, or actually, actually during the hearings, I guess, or during the questioning, was that these guys all independently flew down from Detroit or wherever to Washington in their big, cushy private jets. And this became just like a firestorm in the media of how, how incredibly wasteful and awful this was, you know. And then, of course, and then of course, within 24 hours, MBAA has to go, well, no, wait a minute, you know, don't let's, let's, well, yeah. let's yeah. not trash business aviation quite that bad. It became quite a firestorm. What do you guys think about all this? I think well, it's a uh, I, I think it's a gnat in a tornado. Uh, yeah. It has as much bearing on the reality of what's going on as uh, as, as last week's grocery list. Uh, you know, if you look at how many people that they've had to bring, how many people that they needed to bring, the short term that uh, it, it uh, required them to travel. That is, they're not buying 30-day advance tickets for these trips. Uh, just how much of a, a, a luxury, quote-unquote, uh, I'm not sure really bears out. Uh, if you look at the fact that they were able to uh, come to town, stay a couple of days, and go back on the maximum use of their time for their companies, I'm not sure that it being a, a luxury is actually something that bears out. In terms of being an image problem, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is, particularly for people who don't know anything. And God knows that there are plenty of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who just don't know anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a very unfortunate PR problem. Um, and uh, I don't know if, if the final chapter on this auto industry bailout uh, has been written or, or when it might be written. But clearly, this this little uh, episode will uh, uh, figure prominently into how it, that chapter is written. Well, you uh, know, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, Jeff. Yeah, no, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. The the New York Times reported a couple three days ago that uh, GM was selling four mm-hmm. of its seven airplanes and keeping three. And, and meanwhile, they had pulled themselves out of uh, the FAA's uh, flight tracking database. You know how you can track IFR I, flights yeah. on yeah, FlightAware yeah. or what have you. You know, so, yeah, they're, they're reacting to the PR problem, even as, and I think as Jack said, I mean, really, it can be a very effective use of a CEO's time Absolutely. Uh, to, to travel by BizJet. We all understand this. but Well, and that's the whole reason back under uh, uh, Jack Alcott, the National Business Aviation Association, sure. working with some very sharp software people, put a program together to document the, the value of its philosophy. And, and, and it actually goes so far now as to help companies make a decision on whether – Another mode of transportation or staying longer or shorter would be cheaper than using the company airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call it travel sense, and the S in sense is a dollar sign. And it does a real-time analysis of the cost of the company's airplane, the cost of the people, of the time of the people traveling, uh, if they're having to stay over, the cost of hotel rooms and meals, uh, compares that to airline tickets. Uh, available live at that time. It goes out and searches websites and uh, then comes back and after factoring in 
whatever time difference there might be involved in traveling on the airlines because, strange though it seems, it very often takes much longer on a big fast jet than it does on even a little single engine piston. I don't know how that works out, but it does. And uh, Travel Sense takes that all into account. The, the CEO can't have confidential uh, exactly. conversations on no. an airline, you know. So there, there's, yeah. If, if you factor really all hard that, to keep them secure with all that TSA help around. <laughs> and you know, if there's a last minute change, right? Whether, whether it's in the destination or whether or, or uh, in, in the passengers who are on board or things like that, I, I don't, I don't know that anyone um, here. Uh, among the four of us or anyone um, uh, too many people anyway listening to us would disagree that used properly a business aircraft is a great tool I think the un- the only real unfortunate thing here is um, the PR uh, disaster yeah. uh, quite frankly well, and that it becomes that a, stuff and, like and, this becomes a whipping boy whenever yeah, well, people exactly. are ticked off and, at an and, institution exactly and, and every time that there's been a PR problem uh, with business aircraft, it's been of a similar nature. Years ago, I think 60 Minutes um, went down to, uh, I don't know which location it was for the Super Bowl and went out to the local airport and and was just, you know, filming and writing down in numbers and talking to people. And it was another PR disaster. Oh, and, uh, and Palm Springs or wherever. I don't know where it was. but uh, and, um, and these companies, do their people do such a disservice by yeah. actually scheduling meetings that they can put down in their day timers and stuff uh-huh. for these trips. I've seen it happen at the Indianapolis 500, at the Kentucky Derby. Jiminy, uh, 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 Charlie Daniels Volunteer Jam in Nashville. Uh, there was a company that had a uh, had talked its trade association into some kind of small executive council meeting there in Nashville, so that uh, a couple of dozen companies could justify their people flying in to go to Charlie Daniels Volunteer Jam. Right, and they did real business at those meetings. I'm sure, like deciding whether to wear the black cowboy boots or the brown cowboy boots. <laughs> You know, it, it it doesn't do the community any good when, when when they game the system like this. But these guys having to go to D.C. and having to have a place to discuss their business and do it securely and doing it on really short notice and not really know exactly when they were going back, uh, you know, that's tailored for GA. And yeah. I don't care if it's, yeah. you know, a debonair or a, a, a G4. Yeah, I mean, if 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 I needed to be in D.C. sometime next week, I'm really I'm sorry, I'm not going to hop on an airline because unless the weather is really sucky, like it was today, uh, it's going to take me less time. Yeah, um, total evolution. It's going to still take me less time to get there in my airplane than it would to get on an airliner. So it takes me almost a hundred percent longer to get to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, by common carriage. Uh-huh. As it does in a slow piston airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, yeah, there preach is, this, we preach. We all preach this, and and I, and and when you tell friends this, my hundred and sixty mile an hour airplane can make the trip to Washington D.C. faster than a five hundred mile an hour jetliner. Mm-hmm. And they go, no, 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 that's not possible. It, it is if you use the system that they use and the that's times right. that they require. Yes, it is. 
The trick well, is we've uh, got to figure out how to describe this stuff. We've got to figure out how to we do, and and because... uh, that's that's really the 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 heartbreaker of this whole thing. Um, I, I'm not going to sit here and, and suggest to you that all, all the big three should get bailed out by the federal government, um, but their use podcast. of business, their use of yeah, that's another podcast. But their use of business aircraft should not be uh, the deciding factor. Right. And if they're, if they're, you know, some of the airplanes that GM's getting rid of, they've only got them on lease. And they've only got them on lease from GM credit, GM Talk about taking care of all the business advantages. Uh, you know, GM Large is writing off the lease payments, and GMAC has it as an asset on the books, depreciates it, gets payments for it, and then sells it with residual value. It's, you know, yeah. it's smarter than packaged mortgages, but they're getting rid of leased airplanes, which are not going to make a big difference on the bottom line when they start having to put people on walk-up airline tickets. Mm-hmm. No, but it make, makes for good press, right? Makes for good yeah. press. Moving uh, on here. Moving on. Let's see. Uh, so let's see if I can set the scene here. We um, over over time have uh, we we put forward the notion that this is a very good time to buy an airplane. We I think we may even characterize it as being the best time. That sparked a sort of devil's advocate uh, uh, a thread on in the UCAP forums, where uh, they were just talking about whether maybe in fact this is the worst time to buy an airplane, um, or not the best yet because it's going to get worse. Anyway, so there's a big conversation going on. Um, but one <laughs> interesting thing that fell out of this thread, this conversation in the forums, was a question that one of our listeners asked, uh, a listener who goes by the name um, Vertolet or Vertolet uh, in the forums. Um, said, but this does bring up an important question, he writes, he or she. Uh, what is the long-term future of GA? Will people still be flying small aircraft in 30 years? And if so, will they be filling them with avgas? Are we going to be build, are we going to build more airports or continue closing them? What can our community be doing now to preserve the things we love and prepare for changes that are, are inevitable? So, uh, and, 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 and Bertolais uh, asked us to kind of maybe address this for a few minutes, um, you know. And this certainly could be a whole episode of the podcast. So let's not. But but what do you see in the future? Is GA going to continue to exist? Do piston airplanes continue to thrive? Hundred low lead continue to be available? Well, Hundred low lead is is going to be available in the foreseeable future. The foreseeable future being, you know, what five ten years in the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S. and and. Um, you know, two, two or three things could could um, uh, change that. One is, of course, the uh, uh, inability to to find tetraethyl lead to go into the hundred low lead. Uh, there, are, we've we've talked about this in the past. There are one or two uh, companies in the country, in the world, that manufacture that chemical, which is highly toxic, and and requires special handling. Um, it is in a low lead hundred low lead is really the only uh, gasoline out there that requires it. And there, there are other, you know, racing gasolines perhaps uh, um, that that have tetraethyl lead in it, but hundred low lead aviation gasoline is really the only fuel that requires it. Uh, so that's that's one thing. If we lose uh, hundred, if we lose the tetraethyl lead, then we then we lose what we know of today as hundred low lead gasoline. A second thing is simply environmental concerns. 
despite the relatively small amount of avgas that was burned, that is produced and burned each year, uh, it does put lead into the atmosphere. And there have been noises uh, coming out of the U.S. EPA that uh, maybe it's time to take a good look at, at uh, uh, either, uh, you know, ho- hopefully not banning, but but maybe limiting or restricting um, lead uh, um, exhaust emissions. Um I don't know how they would do that. I don't know how they would accomplish that. I don't know how they would regulate that. Uh, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. Now, all of that having been said, there are really only if you if you took uh, uh, pump gasoline uh, and uh, improved its quality, improved its. Uh, let's back up. If you took uh, a premium automobile gasoline, premium unleaded. And you improved its quality, and you improved its handling, and um, you tweaked the the chemical package involved in producing it by just a small amount. You would have a a 96-octane aviation, uh, I think it's called 96UL. Dave, jump in here anywhere. I think Uh, that's right. Um, That is, uh, that there is a, a standard for that the FAA has approved. Uh, for uh, aviation use. Um, some engines would have to be uh, recertified on it. My engine, I think, would have to be recertified on it, but that's something that TCM would certainly do. Um, some engines would not be certifiable, and I'm thinking of uh, the TIO 540, whatever it is that's that's in uh, Navajo, Piper Navajo Chieftains that's uh, runs basically close to detonation at full power uh, on a normal day uh, yeah. with 100 low lead. Oh, we're well, uh, talking about engines hand, here yeah, that have are, boost pressures up into 42, right. 43 right. inch territory. Uh, a a, 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 a Rolls Royce Merlin and a P51 ain't going to run too well on 96 UL. It doesn't run all that well right now on 100 low lead because you can't pull full power out of those things on, on today's fuel like you could the 130-octane stuff that they were using during World War II. Um, which had a lot more lead in it. <laughs> which had a lot more lead in it. Um, so will there be a piston aviation as we know it? Well, let's, let's just pick my airplane um, with a, a, a 40-year-old Bonanza with uh, – with an IO520 in it, will it be uh, a flyable, will it be a viable airplane uh, in, say, 15 years? Um, yes, I think it will be. I think there's enough demand for um, fuel in for those airplanes, for airplanes of that type, that um, it's not going to go away. Now, it might drop a lot in value. Um, because that fuel might be much more expensive, but it will be available. Um, if, if you know, the economy bounces back like we all hope it will in a short enough time frame, uh, people like Cirrus and Diamond um, are going to be cranking out more and more airplanes. Um, already, you know, you can't swing a dead cat in most places without hitting the Cirrus. Yep. Um, today on the ramp up at Myrtle Beach, there's a Bonanza. There's a couple of Cirruses, there's a flock of Skyhawks, and there's a there's a, some business jets. And that's kind of the uh, – I didn't see any Moonies on the ramp there. I didn't see any Centurions. There was one Skyline. 
um, that's kind of the way it goes these days. Um, well, those, those are the I, active airplanes. Those are the airplanes that people want to travel in. You've you've mentioned uh, some good some good uh, prospects for a replacement for hundred low lead. There are some others out there in the in the advanced research, just short of production volume uh, stage, mm-hmm. that create a usable, certifiable fuel. They've already run some of this through the FAA uh, and the tests that are required that are non-petroleum based. And unless our community gets dramatically bigger, they're going to be able to produce this fuel in a volume commensurate with what we need. Now, my bottom line is that as long as we've got the ability to move, that is the freedom from you know having to tell someone every step of the way, every bloody thing we're doing, and can land in whatever airports we choose without them telling us, yo, yeah, no, you, you, no, you can't go there today. As long as we're free to move where we want to move, as long as there are people interested in traveling in a way that's more flexible than the airlines and faster than the family car, there's going to be a place for the 100, 120, 130 knot airplane. Yeah. Uh, as long as there are people in business who are impassioned by that ability to travel, who recognize and are willing to do what it takes to take advantage of the business benefits of flying a 180 or a 200 knot airplane, then there's going to be uh, plenty of demand for airplanes like Jeb's Debonair, Bonanza's uh, 206's, uh, Mooney's, and Cirruses and Columbia's and, and Cardinal RGs, uh, yeah, but, uh, heck yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and that and that's what's going to keep us alive. Yeah, uh, to me, our biggest challenge isn't fuel, uh, and it's not airports. Not yeah. you know as much as we've lost in the last thirty years, it's still not airports yet. It's our physical numbers, mm-hmm. uh, pilots. The fact mean. that we're shrinking as a population. Public is, relations, you know. You know, yeah. that's what's that's what's going to do the worst damage to us of yeah. anything out there. It's yeah. not going to be fuel availability or the ability to find a runway to land in. It's going to be there being so few of us that we're not economically viable anymore, and it's just going to be outrageously expensive to even do low-level LSA stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that to me is really the the longer term um, uh, danger, and. Um, you know that's one of the reasons we talk about economical flying on, on this podcast. Is one of the reasons that others have picked up this banner. It is tough out there. It's tough to. It's a tough time yeah. to be an aircraft owner. It's a tough time to be a renter pilot. It's a yeah. tough time to to try to learn how to fly because there's so many challenges. But um, to me, the greatest threat to general aviation, and I put the words general aviation in quotes, um, has nothing to do with. The, the price of fuel or the availability of fuel, but it's the willingness of uh, of non-aviation people to try to um, do away with this this lifestyle and uh, this community. Uh, I don't know what what you want to call it, but um, um, to me, that's the real danger. Yeah. yeah. Jen, I'm curious. So you, your your club, quote unquote club, um, has three airplanes. I think you said there are thirty members slash owners. Is that 
28 right now. Our bylaws allow for 30. We have 28. 28. Do you do you find that it's difficult to find people to fill the empty slots, um, or is there a waiting list, or how does that work? Usually is a waiting list. We uh, we've been in existence since uh, 1981. The club has a, a really great history here in Austin. We started out with. Uh, like 10 members and a 152, and then we sold that and got a couple Cherokees, and then I was part of the expansion committee uh, that added the uh, Cardinal RG. We're very, very attractive to pilots like myself. Um, you're, you're typical. I'm, you know, I'm a 70-hour-a-year kind of weekend warrior, right? I mm-hmm. fly around Texas. I take some long trips. I do training. I do currency. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And the club works very, very well. I would strongly, I, I'm, I'm kind of evangelist for the the flying club model because if you're that kind of a pilot and you don't need to fly your airplane 250 hours a year or whatever, do you do you let do, do people? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. No. It works really well in in practice. Uh, the, the availability is great. I can get an airplane 90 percent of the time. I'm I'm curious though about the sort of the demographic of your members. I mean, do you yeah. do you have a minimum number of hours? Do you let beginners in? Do you, how does that work? Absolutely no. We'll take student pilots. Student pilots, uh, you know, guys, they're often the safest among us yeah. all, right? Do you find sure. that do you find that people who are who are member owners um h- how often do they drop out from not flying? Most of the time when people leave our club, they are moving up to something else. I see. Uh, you know, a, a higher performance aircraft, a smaller partnership, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, we get some people who just leave for, you know, they're, they're moving away for geographic reasons or whatever. But it's, it's, it's very rare that they're disappointed by our fleet. It's, yeah. it's great. And being an owner, and, and that's the structure of my club. My club is a nonprofit corporation. The club owns the airplanes. I own a share in the club. The only way in or out of my club is to buy a share from a departing member, right? It's not... I know some, sometimes there are things called flying clubs where you pay an initiation fee and some right. dues and stuff like that. That's not what we're about. We are owners. We are co-owners of these airplanes. And You're more of an equity-based club as opposed we're an, exactly, to… Exactly, Jeb. Thank you. Yeah, we're an equity-based flying mm-hmm. So as a result, we all care a whole lot. We, we do owner-assisted annuals. We all come together to do the oil changes, to wash our plane. That was my other question. So it's more than just a, a mechanism for owning airplanes and, and you know, kind of re- controlling costs. It, there is a, a quote-unquote social aspect to the very thing. Very much so, yeah. And, I, I mean, I have some very good friends in the club with whom um, I, I safety pilot. We safety pilot for each other. You know, uh, we, we have Christmas parties. You know. Yeah, even the plane washes are fun. You know, the, the belly wash is a new member initiation. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And I've That's done what my I've been time. doing <laughs> I've done it. I've got down there on the crawler. I got the oil all over myself. I've been there. You know? Oh, and that's a real <laughs> chore on those PA-28s. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It really is. It really is. All that know, hat but... channel down there. Goodness gracious. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a wonderful model. Uh, the club is – we're able to operate at cost because we all volunteer our time to run the club. I'm an officer of the club. I'm the secretary of my club. I take care of 
insurance, leases, new member uh, initiation, that kind of stuff. But because we're not paying overhead to, to run a, a flight school or whatever, we're able to operate at cost and uh, make flying a lot more affordable. That's that's our charter. That's great. That's great. So what's, what, what are your airplane rental? I mean, what do you pay into the club to fly any of those airplanes? Well, it's it's again. You, the only way in is to purchase a share from somebody who's leaving. So sure. that cost is negotiable directly between buyer and seller. Right now, um, our shares are trading at about eighty five hundred dollars. So that's that's your investment in the club. Presumably, well, this gets into the future of GA, right? Presumably, you're going to get at least some, not necessarily all, of that back when you leave. Sure. We regularly assess our members for upgrades to the airplanes. Um, we recently painted our warrior we put a 430 into our archer you're not going to get all that money back right right it, yeah. it, it just doesn't amortize but and then how do you price the flying hours um it absolutely on cost um you know obviously we have fuel we have maintenance reserves uh we have engine overhaul reserves we have fixed costs like hangar uh-huh. and uh, insurance and uh it's uh, I don't know. I guess we're we're charging about eighty eighty five dollars for our uh, our Cherokees right now, and uh, about a hundred dollars for our Cardinal right now. And that's that wet a or lot dry? of that. That's reasonable. Is that wet yeah. or dry? That, that's wet. We, wet. Okay. That's, yeah. All right. Yep. Very reasonable. That's very reasonable. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and and we're you know kind of at the mercy of fuel rates being based at uh, Bergstrom at uh, uh, Signature at Bergstrom. The, the the fuel rates there are very are very high, so yeah, we yeah. have to take that out. But it's a great model. I, I highly recommend it. It sounds pretty intriguing. Do you, do you have um, um, dues monthly dues also? Yeah, we do. Our, we have monthly dues, in theory, cover the fixed costs. Sure. And sure. then the hourly rates cover the actual operating costs. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah. Hey, we better move along here. We're just, this is just, it's a big list that we're not even beginning to get to. <laughs> I this take list. a drink. Yeah, take a drink. Take a couple yep. of drinks and let's barge I'm on. I'm taking two. Um, I don't know if I want to go into all the details because we're running so long, but I just did want to call attention to the fact that I uh, I did get a chance to go out and fly the uh, GoBosch 700 LSA um, the other day. Um, yeah. I, I've been flying, I'm working gradually, slowly on my uh, tailwheel endorsement in the Cetabria. And, and actually, since the last time we talked, I did have my second flight in the Cetabria, and that, that was kind of fun and cool, and, and I felt like I made some progress, which was which was very satisfying, um, but I, since I had to, since I became a refugee from Skyhaven um, Airport from from Ossipi Aviation, which closed, um, I don't have an airplane. I can just go out and fly. So I, I said, let's take a break from the Cetabria, and I'm gonna check me out on the Gobosh, so I'll have something to fly. And so we did that the other day, um, and uh, it was a very interesting experience. It, it, it was fun, and I enjoyed it, and I'm going to do it some more. But it wasn't what I expected. It was a very different airplane than than what I had expected. And uh, you know, I mean, just kind of a few of the things that that struck me. It, first of all, it's it's got a Rotax engine in it, which is the first time I've ever flown an airplane with a Rotax, which kind of makes it different just from the get go. Right. Um, 
Um, interesting. I didn't realize this. Um, I didn't realize you could put either hundred low lead or auto gas in the Rotax. And uh, and they, I was talking to them at at, at uh, Southern Maine Aviation. They put hundred low lead in it just because that's all they have available. Ironically, they only have hundred low lead. Well, they have Jet A, but they don't have MoGas available at the airport. So uh, they're they're in the process of trying to get auto gas available at the FBO. But uh, for the time being, they put hundred low lead in it. Um, yeah, they could probably run it in their Chateaubria too. Yeah, they said they said that they they said that the Gobosh actually run better on the autogas than on I was going to say a lot of these Rotex engines will run better on Mogas. Yeah. So, um it was really interesting airplane to fly. Uh, a couple of con- uh, of things that struck me, um it was very cramped. I mean, I I knew it was an LSA, it's a small airplane, you know, and I fly 152s, so I know small airplanes, but this was very cramped. It was much tighter than I expected it to be me and the CFI um in this little two-seater. Part of it I think is because we are wearing winter clothes, winter coats and things like that um but it was it was very tight in the cockpit um and so that well, was kind of 41 inches across it's a little bit wider than a one it's a it's quite a bit wider than a 150 <laughs> or 152 but but it was very it's tight still and, not uh, what you'd call uh expansive yeah no, it's uh, another thing that struck me about flying it is that I expected it to be a very benign aircraft, and I guess in many ways it is. <laughs> um, but um, for just one example is that it required a lot of right rudder um, on takeoff. I oh. mean, I, I was astounded. You know, I mean, you basically had to push your right foot to the floor um, on rotation, and and as you climb out, um, it really, really wanted to to veer off to the left. Um, and and that that kind of Jack, that's a good trainer though. It it is good, and I'm I'm obviously learning that with the Citabria, so that's kind of a good lesson. Um, but uh, but that really kind of took me by by uh, surprise. Interestingly, and I'm discovering this with the Citabria as well, is that this whole flying with my right hand or left hand thing is really kind of becoming a thing for me. Okay, so the Gobosh also has control sticks, and um and it and it the it has two throttle controls in on the panel. It has one in the center, sort of where you would, con, you know, traditionally be familiar with the throttle being, and then there's a, a then there's a, a a second throttle on the left, you know, right right near the edge of the canopy. Um, and and I thought, okay, this is because you know you're going to want to fly the stick with your right hand because that's the way, quote unquote, you're supposed to fly a stick. And um, and so I spent a lot of the the flight trying to use my right hand on the stick because I wanted to be consistent. And the problem is that everything else in the aircraft and and I really fought with this throughout the whole flight. I really wanted to be consistent, but I kept having to change hands and do weird things. And as I was driving away, I'm thinking to myself, No, you know, I just got to like get over this and and fly the stick with my left hand on this particular airplane because all of the other controls, all of the secondary controls, you need to reach with your right hand. All hmm. of the panel mounted things, the trim, the flaps, the you name it, is all all on on you know mainly accessible really basically only accessible with your right hand and uh, so i just decided next time i fly it i'm not going to mess around with this i'm just going to bite the bullet i'm going to fly the stick with my left hand even even though that's different than what i'm flying the stick in in this tabria and that's the uh, way you'll find most stick controlled side-by-side seating aircraft not all most yeah yeah so that was that was a little bit of a thing um um you know I, I made a little list here of things that are kind of little problems for you, and I don't mean to kind of be bashing the airplane. I kind of like the airplane. I'm looking forward to flying it more. But there were there were a bunch of little things that were that were interesting. The throttle, I, and and again, I don't have a lot of experience flying a lot of different airplanes, so maybe this is not so unusual. But it was unusual for me, and that is that the throttle was spring loaded such that if it 
the, the friction lock was turned loose, it wanted to advance the power. And that's that's the carburetors on the engine, is it? And so yeah. as a result, you had to be really careful to make sure that you kept it locked down. And if you really didn't tighten down that friction lock pretty firmly, it would creep forward, and you'd be you know the power setting would would rise as you were flying. And so that was and that was especially awkward because when I was trying to fly with my right hand with my left hand on that left mounted throttle, it didn't have a friction lock. And as a result, I was it was yet another thing I was crossing my arms on and doing weird things there. So another, yet another reason to fly with my left hand on the on the stick. Mine's story, Bill. I'll come back. Okay. Um, it took me a while to get used to the fact that this Rotax has much higher RPM settings than I'm used to on these other. You know, it's like you're cru- you're you're taking off you at uh, you know four and five thousand RPM. I, I've, I've always thought that that was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, Why that is that? They really should be using a prop RPM tachometer or, or a power percentage. Yeah. Or a power percentage, uh, because for you really have to know what the power band numbers are for those engines. And and this isn't just with Rotax engines. It's the same with a lot of uh, light sport aircraft that use some of the other power plants out there. They're good engines, but they're all running, almost all of them. Uh, I take that back. There's one that runs straight, direct drive, just like our good old uh, Lycoming and Continentals. Uh, and that's the, the little Jabiru engines. But the, uh, the the Rotaxes and the Kawasaki's and uh, uh, the Hearth engines all run reduction drives, and the tachometers are always marked in engine RPM. Well, 100 horsepower Rotax, uh, what the proper RPM setting is uh, is fairly consistent. Uh, the RPM varies because they offer two different gear drive ratios depending on the installation. Right. So they tend to use the tack number for the engine speed. That runs about 5,600 RPM at full power, about 5,000 to 5,200 RPM for cruise, uh, about 4,800 to 4,800 for descents and uh, slowing down for the pattern. It's very confusing to somebody that's getting in and out of an airplane that has a drag drive engine and a tachometer that never goes above 2700. Yeah, so I definitely spent some time trying to figure out what the right settings were for various modes of flight, and uh, I was getting the hang of it towards the end. We only flew for about an hour, and we weren't able to actually finish the checkout um, because we just weren't able to finish it, but uh, I'm going to go back and fly one more time. And I so go back and your, go back your flight and instructor check. should be briefing you on these if he's giving you a checkout on it. Uh, they should give you a page out of the POH yeah. that well, shows I, you what the RPM setting should be. Uh, because some of these Rotac engines have a five-minute limit on full power. Yeah, I actually got a, uh, I, I, they, I bought a, uh, a POH for about $15. It was kind of interesting to read. Um, and it does have a lot of these settings, you know, takeoff settings, climb-out settings, and so forth. What it didn't have was things like, you know, what setting do you suggest flying downwind? You know, what setting do you reduce to when you're beam the numbers in order to start the, de- the descent? Things like that. You know, numbers that I'm very familiar with in my 152s, and, and now I'm getting familiar in the Cetabria. And, and ironically, or maybe not ironically, they're very similar kinds of numbers in, in those two airplanes. And uh, So the, well, the RPM settings was kind of a little bit of a thing for me. And uh, Yeah, I think, think of it. In, in, you know, when you're talking about translating, say, a 150s power settings in the pattern to your your Gobosh power settings in the pattern, think in terms of percentages of power mm-hmm. as opposed to absolute RPMs. 
Um, and, you know, think also in terms of, you know, what airspeeds you want and what I, – I would actually suggest maybe you go out of the pattern, go out to the practice area, um, and uh, just fly straight and level. Yeah, that's what and, I thought and, I wanted and, to do and, later on. Figure out what and, – and then, you know, add some flaps in. Figure out what uh, power settings and what and, – and, and Dave, you'll appreciate this – but what power and pitch settings – will produce what performance yeah no i know and that's that's sort of what i was doing flying the pattern but it was a little bit crazy <laughs> and plus you know plus i'm struggling in the pattern because i got this whole left hand right hand thing going you know and it's oh like yeah a, you're 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 biting but, off a whole lot of yeah, stuff so it'll get better there. the next time Another, it, but, no, but there's nothing new under the sun because i had a, i had an episode years ago similar to the, what you went through with that jack yeah. and i i just got checked out in uh what was then a relatively brand new Piper Turbo Arrow Four. This was uh, this was the big T tail. That was the T tail turbo at, it, at altitude. You know, it was a f- fairly fast airplane for the times. Uh, had some other issues, but this was a, a, a nice airplane. I'd just gotten checked out in this, and I was taking a buddy of mine flying. We were flying out of Dulles uh, International back when Dulles was the practice approach capital of the world back in the early eighties, and uh, we were going out to the southwest, something like that, and. Really, the first time I've been cut loose in this in this airplane. So we go smoking out of Dulles and um, get up to altitude and, and level off. And controller asks me a question, and I start I reach up and and respond to it. And you know the airplane's doing something kind of funny, and and uh, controller can't hear me. And I thought, what is going on here? And and controller starts getting on my case, and and I, I you know finally communicate with the controller, and I get the airplane straightened back out, and we go on down the road a few more miles, and the controller says something else to me, and I respond. The the airplane starts getting out of whack again, and the controller still can't hear me, and I I, I finally focus on on responding to the controller and get the airplane straightened back out, and, and all of a sudden it dawned on me. Every time I was mashing a mic button i'm hitting the trim switch <laughs> every time every time i hit the trim switch i'm mashing the mic button so i understand you know finding yeah. things in the in the in where they're not supposed to be yeah a but couple of the quick things here to... um talking about power settings this one was a little bit the first couple times it happened it was kind of like a oh um and that is that i don't know if this is a rotax thing or what but when we were out in the practice area and we were doing slow flight installs and whatnot, if I would reduce power just kind of a little bit too assertively, all right, the engine would just kind of like miss big time. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like whoa, I don't do that. Attention. You know, and I, I wasn't reducing power that dramatically. I mean, it was very typical of the way I reduce power when I was flying the 152 or even the Cetabria when I'm doing this kind of stuff. But, but you know, you kind of had to really kind of gently pull out the power um, in, in that airplane. And I don't know if it's a Rotax thing or if it was just that particular aircraft or whatnot, but it was kind of like it would get your attention. You know, it's kind of like, whoop, don't do that. Okay. So that was interesting. Here's one that's scary. I mean, this is really scary to me. So the canopy on this airplane, it's this big bubble canopy, and it's hinged at the front, and so obviously it it, it opens up at the back. Um, And the canopy has emergency release levers um, at the left front corner of the the cockpit and the right front corner. There's these these red-handled handles. Okay, sure. And... um, it just really disturbed me because they were right there. They were first of all, they were right next to the lever that you used for locking down the canopy, but the one on my left hand on the left seat was right above 
the that secondary throttle. Ah. And and I just kept thinking to myself, what would happen? You know, I mean, it's like <laughs> like that would just really make your day bad. You know, it's like, oops. You know, I mean, it just seemed like these two releases were like really two within reach, two there. You know, and uh, um, I, I keep meaning to look through the manual here and find out what whether or not, uh, Lordy, you'd be in deep deep trouble. But will the airplane even fly if the canopy departed? Um, it will, but it'll get a lot windier. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. You're going to want to put your head back against the back of the seat. Yeah. So it kind of bothered me where these canopy jettison, uh, you know, levers or, or things were located. That that was a little bit disturbing. Just uh, don't touch them while the aircraft's moving. Yeah. And finally, um, reading, like I said, I bought a copy of the POH. Um, it, it's clearly a manual that's been translated from another <laughs> Yeah. Um, and not dramatically so. I mean, it's a decent job, all right? But but there are lots of misspellings. There are some really odd phrasings. Um, um, there's a couple of things. I meant to flag them, but I didn't. But I came across a couple last night when I was reading through this thing that just kind of like don't make sense. I was just like reading the paragraph over and over again what in the world were they trying to say here which is kind of okay except that now what i worry about is i worry about things that might be in this poh that aren't obviously wrong that you're reading and saying and taking for truth and uh so. uh, sure and the sure. gobosh is is from is, is built where jack uh, dave that's more of a question for you it's like i want to say germany or scandinavia no or? it's 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 from uh, a little company called aero a-e-r-o in poland oh poland yeah that's warsaw poland is what that says on the front of the and uh they actually hold a number of type certificates for different aircraft designs and uh the uh lsa is uh one of their specific made for the u.s because the airplanes uh i believe too heavy and too fast for the European microlight market that allows two-place airplanes. Yeah. So, uh, so anyways, that's sort of a, a long story. I, I, I just make no mistake. I, I like flying the airplane, and I'm going to fly it some more. Um, I'm certainly going to complete this uh, checkout so that I can take my friends flying in it. And uh, um, it, there was a lot of things to you know to to its to its credit that I liked, and uh, it's really a lot of get up and go. It's got great visibility. It's uh, you know, it's inexpensive to operate in terms of gas, um, and uh, so I don't mean to to just point out its negatives, but there were a bunch of things that were kind of got my attention. That were just because they were different things that you know take some getting used to. Partly I think because it's a small airplane, and partly because it's got that different engine than what I'm familiar with. So, so that was my experience flying the Gobosh, and uh, we'll go back sometime in the next week and finish that checkout, and then return to the Citabria uh, adventure. You're cool. just a variety maniac here. Well, you know, that's really that one of the things I'm going for here is I'm taking advantage of the fact that this FBO that I'm hanging out at, at has a bunch of different airplanes, which is different for me. And and I just, I'm, you know, I'm taking about taking advantage of this to try and taste a lot of different airplanes because so much of my flying experience has been one or, in one or two models. And, and all these things that, you know, to me seem incredibly unusual, it's just they're unusual because they're outside of my experience. And I'm trying to broaden that experience right now, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I'm doing this. And, uh, You're you know, a smart man, Charlie Brown. Somewhere down the line, we're going to fly the Valor, which is the other LSA they have on the line there. And, how, many, uh, how many different models of LSAs do they have? Just two. They have, a, they have the Gobosh and they have a Valor. And then they have the Citabria. And then they have three um, Skyhawks. Um, they use <laughs> They used to have um, a 152 and a, a DA-40, 
But apparently oh. the 152 and the DA40s weren't getting flown, so they decided to take them off the line. Which is too bad because I wanted to. T- I, I certainly wanted to fly the Diamond, and uh, and I'm not going to get a chance to fly it through that. that that's another nice airplane with center sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so. and and there will you will find some more differences there. You might find that it will be, you know, perhaps closer to your Cessna or Piper experience in the Gobosh, but too it will you will find differences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyways, so that's me blathering about my flying lately. Um, having a lot of fun with it. Having a lot of fun with it. This is a story we sort of talked about last time, but I just want to kind of revisit it because it's important, and that is that Jane Garvey is now sort of officially one of the unofficial candidates for uh, Secretary of uh, Transportation. Is there anything new about this? Uh, anything new? Not over the holiday, and nothing of which I'm aware anyway. I've been kind of out of, uh, away from uh, cell phone and internet uh, uh, over the last several days, so... Um the latest, the latest is that there's nothing new to add to what we said right. the last time. Uh, uh, Madam former administrator is still the most prominent name being mentioned, but that is by no means uh, uh, an indication that she's the slam dunk given. Well, one there was given. another, there was another name mentioned um, that is also as prominent, perhaps more prominent, and that's Mort Downey. Yeah. Um, Mortimer Downey. Mort Downey um, was, um, gosh, under. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember if it was under Liddy Dole or, um, or uh, perhaps under um, um, Manetta. Yeah. Um, during the Clinton administration or something like uh, I, I don't recall, but he was like um, the number two uh, in charge of DOT for a while, and had was fairly well respected. Um, and whether or not he would get the DOT nod, um, no one knows. But his name also has been mentioned uh, in addition to Garvey's. I think the next week to 10 days will shed a much more light uh, on this topic uh, as we get past the uh, get past the holidays. And I think uh, Obama is going to be uh, setting his team up and making it public. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that then later on. Yeah. David, tell us about this uh, interesting little, uh, let's see now, the headline you wrote, the little note you wrote to us here is a new approach to driving-flying machine quest, to the de- driving-flying machine quest. Tell, oh, us, tell right. us about this the, airplane, the, the so-called Parajet, which I'm going to come the back Parajet. to. Parajet. It's a... Uh, cool video a, on their site. I like the video on their site. That was neat. Too. They, it's, a little, it's a little vehicle uh, that uses a parafoil, a parachute airfoil, for lift, and is basically set up like to to be like a motorcycle tandem seating, two people, and you land and tuck the uh, canopy away in onboard storage, and you're driving around like a motorcycle. Uh, the uh, propeller is actually enclosed in a cage like a ducted fan for safety. Uh, the Parajet Volution, they call it. Uh, Apparently, they're using their own engine design on this rather than one of the known entities, which are numerous. Uh, It comes from the good folks in the United Kingdom. The link will be on the website. Uh, I'm pretty sure that they're not going to displace Honda or Kawasaki or Suzuki in the motorcycle world. It'd be interesting to see whether they displace any of the powered parachute makers in the uh, light sport and uh, ultralight world. So, 
It's an interesting looking machine. I've seen a lot of people flying similar kinds of things at Oshkosh. It looks like it's a lot of fun. They, 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 they I guess it's a passion. It's a different kind of oh. aircraft. But here's my, here's my thing. All right, they call it the Parajet. All right, now. You know, we're getting a little free and easy with the words here, all right? This is like we had yeah. we had we had a rocket a while back that wasn't a rocket, all right? Oh yeah, and right. Now we have a jet that's not a jet, all right? Uh, what is the right, the Martin jet pack wasn't a jet pack and uh the parajet is actually not a jet at all. Right. Right. So, uh I don't know. It looks like a neat gadget, but I'm not sure why they call it a parajet except that well, they want it to because they can. It's really easy a little because marketing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. you know? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. Marketing as, you know, R&D is ends it making the machine work and safe. I think when Cessna should take so that's when the old names go out the window. So what is it? Well, it's a aerial vehicle with flexible airfoil lifting device. No, 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 no. It's a parajet. Cessna Cessna should rebrand and rename the uh, the 162 and just put the word jet or even rocket in its name and uh-huh. it would just become, you know, we don't have to worry about Eclipse's problems. We've got our jet right there, huh? They, they, you got the sky catcher there. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But listen, so you I You don't was... think that sky, jet or sky catcher wasn't the result of some marketing research, but uh, I got a bridge in Arizona to sell you. Uh-huh. So in, in doing a little research and slash or, or perhaps snooping around the Internet uh, in preparation for Jen's first visit to uh, the virtual hangar here, um, I was looking around at various things. And one of them uh, I discovered, Jen, was that you had some experience. You put some pictures on the Internet um, about an experience riding a, 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 one of these powered parachute kinds of things. Uh, I did. I did. Tell us about yeah. that. What was that all about? It was real fun. Um, I am trying to remember. I think this was called the Air Shoot. I'm not Air Shooter, uh, but it was a it was a two place uh, powered parachute uh, that I went up in with the pilot, and it 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 actually kind of gives me hope for this parajet concept because it's a very it's a very neat way to travel. We never got above about 500 feet or faster than 30 miles an hour. Now, the the, the Parajet supposedly goes, I think, about 70 miles an hour, something like that, right? And I misspoke. I said motorcycle. It's really more like a dune buggy. It, it is a dune buggy. It's a dune buggy underneath a, 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 a airfoil, powered right? parachute, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But my powered parachute um, experience was fantastic. It's a wonderful way to see the country low and slow. It's it's a really neat uh, – Dave, you'd probably experience or appreciate this. I, uh, it's I, a neat photography. powered platform. parachute experience was back about 1984. Really? Yeah. And the thing that I loved about it was its simplicity. Uh, you pushed on the left rudder pedal, it turned left. You pushed on yeah. the right rudder pedal, you turned right. You added power above that necessary to maintain altitude, and you climbed. You go up, yeah. And you decrease power below that necessary to maintain altitude, and you came down. And the wonderful thing was that it did everything at the same airspeed. <laughs> the only unnerving part was laying the parachute out on the ground behind the vehicle and then you get in the get in the get in the vehicle and you look back 
to make sure that the airfoil is in fact unfolding. You know, yeah, yeah. If if you go the right time of day, if you're at Oshkosh and probably at at Sun and Fun as well, um, they'll be launching these kinds of aircraft, and it's kind of interesting. Just just that part is pretty interesting because you're right. They lay it out behind you, and then you kind of start going, and hopefully it inflates. And uh, I actually saw one tip over. Nobody was hurt, but uh, it caught the wind wrong, or the wind caught it wrong, and it kind of dragged it sideways, and the uh, and the the, the it just kind of tipped over on its side. And, uh, you know, what no really harm, jumped no out at me about this Parajet Skycar is that my, my major uh, concept about powered parachutes was that one airspeed performance envelope. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. talking about a takeoff speed of 60 kilometers per hour, uh, which would be about 40 miles an hour. At a top speed of 110 kilometers an hour, which would be about a little over 70 miles an hour, and a range of about 180 miles. Uh, That speed variation, uh, boy, that's really broad. And Uh, a maximum altitude of flight level 150, 15,000 feet. So... And then when you land, you can go jeeping because it's got four-wheel independent suspension. <laughs> Jen, last thing I wanted to ask you about this. So is this, was this your first experience flying in an aircraft that was that wide open? Well, unless you count skydiving. Oh, my. You're one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely oh recommend it. You guys, have, have anybody here? Which, which skydiving? Skydiving, I made yeah. ten. I made ten jumps years ago and Dave, came to my senses. Yeah, and and I I don't see myself doing it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, you should do it. Yeah, okay. You That's should what you say. definitely do it once. It's it's great. I mean, just just reading through all the disclaimers that they make you sign before you go up. <laughs> Is well, that, there you go. You're being and, so and, convincing, and, and, Jen. You're being so convincing. De- de- yeah, I am. Right. Uh, definitely um, pay for the, uh, the the video. You know, right? Because I mean, how many times are you going to do this, right? Yeah. Not very many. I'll tell you right now. Not very get, many. Get yourself on video coming down. I I went up with uh, my only brother, and my mom was like, "Oh." There's a really black joke there. That really you know, dark, dark. Just... <laughs> <laughs> but it used to it, never mind. Uh, you, you, everybody okay. gets the joke now. Go ahead. Yeah. So you went I, up with I, your I only just brother. blew past that. Yeah, Jack. No, no, no. In brother. my enthusiasm for skydiving, you know, right. and I, I, I would definitely do it. Um, yeah. If I didn't already have one expensive hobby. Clearly, from hanging out at the airports and that, that have these kinds of operations, folks who skydive love it. And I guess there's oh, a yeah. lot to be said for it, but it's unlikely you're going to get me to do it. And I, I have I have grave doubts about whether I'd be able to jump out of an airplane that was on fire and spiraling towards <laughs> the ground. Right. Okay. <laughs> I just... You know, the, the hard part is that first step. After that, Everything falls into place. Yeah, that's right. Gra- gravity it's just takes the first step. It's just the first step. All right, listen, we got to move on here. You know, it, and I always do this. I save these big ones for last. Um, I'm not even sure there's much for us to talk about this. When will uh, you learn? This is yeah. a big story, but big there's story. really... So since we last talked, well, last time we talked, we were worried about Eclipse meeting its payroll. 
And uh, they did, in fact, meet that payroll about a week and a half ago. Um, but then soon after that, they declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And I'm sure just about everybody who pays attention to the aviation community is, is aware of this. Um, it, it's apparently, though, a little bit more complicated than simply trying to protect themselves from creditors. There's what? There's like quite a, quite a convoluted deal in the background of this whole thing. And, convoluted, uh, I think, is... is uh, Machiavellian? That and uh, maybe a couple of other words, kind of the one word anyway that sums up um, Eclipse's history over the last several months. Um, basically, um, this this chapter eleven and debtor in in uh, I forget what the phrase is possession, possession, thank you, debtor in, debtor in possession status and, and all this machinations. Um, I, I don't know what it all means. Uh, I'm not a, very sophisticated financially and these days I don't know that anybody really is but uh, um, the, the people that are really taking it in the shorts of the customers especially the people already operating uh, and owning these aircraft um, there's a lot of little stuff in the uh, and there's a lot of fine print in the uh, aircraft flight manual uh, for example that the aircraft has to go back to Eclipse or an Eclipse service center uh, for just about everything that happens to it, uh, scheduled or non-scheduled maintenance. And uh, if there's no one to take it back to, it's not clear to me how much longer these airplanes are going to be flying. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Eclipse is going to dry up and blow away in a, in a stiff breeze. Um, there will be, you know, some, it seems like anyway, that this, this, uh, um, there will be some element of Eclipse that will go forward here. Uh, the extent to which they'll be making new airplanes is not clear. Um, whether that ownership will be based in the United States or in Russia or in some other uh, country is not clear. Um, the extent to which they will honor existing deposits, exactly. the extent to which they will honor existing warranties, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the extent to which they will honor existing financial obligations to suppliers – all of these things are up for grabs, and in essence here, the way that it reads, at least, and I'm talking read in a chessboard sense and not in a straight, this is what the document says, but under the application that they made when they filed, when Eclipse filed for bankruptcy protection in Delaware, where they're incorporated, I believe, they... Uh, they set in motion a number of things simultaneously. One of them was uh, the uh, a filing that told the court that they had this much money provided to them to help them keep the doors open. They asked for approval of debtor in possession financing so they could use that money, which keeps the doors open, which keeps the current management under control. They also set in motion what they want to do to dispose of the company, which is an auction. And to make matters even sweeter, they've got a pre-arranged purchaser who's willing to come to that auction and buy the company for a predetermined amount of money that will, in essence, give the new players, who reads like some of the old players, uh, control of the company, except this time in a position to dispose of a negotiated percentage of all the obligations that they have. And those obligations, depending on which number you decide to take in or out of context, uh, seem to 
range anywhere from 700 some odd million to about a billion dollars in obligations. And I have to wonder how a company that by its own statements was the very best capitalized general aviation launch in the history of aviation anywhere uh, wound up with all that money down the hole and that much farther in debt to build only 250 or so airplanes. Yeah, well, that's because that's it wasn't a that. Remarkable, that is a remarkable down-the-rabbit-hole trick. I don't think we did that well in Iraq. Yeah. No. I mean, the, the whole point is it wasn't that good a business. What was that report that we read that we quoted a couple episodes ago that said that this was just an astoundingly bad business? <laughs> and, uh, remember that quote? What was it? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it was. It was an amazingly frank statement about how bad this eclipse was as a business. Um, well, the business sort of model. Paraphrasing this report, and yeah, you know, they were criticizing the business model and the business plan that was based on the business right. model. They said the airplane they had were a lot both to basically be, self-created. Right. They yeah. said the airplane had a lot to be said for it, but the business model was just. I don't know, abysmal or whatever. I don't, again, and, I'm paraphrasing. And, but, uh, you know, it was a case, a classic case of trying to advance on too many fronts, new states of the art, simultaneously. Yeah. So anyways, it's a big mess right now. That's um, all being, being, I'm sure there's major negotiations going on all over the world right now, trying to figure out exactly how this is going to shake out. And like you said, there's just no knowing whether or not what's going to happen to the current owners, what's going to happen to the and deposit if you holders. Happen to have, if you happen to have any kind of paperwork that says that you own any kind of share in Eclipse, I suggest that you frame it right next to your Lehman Brothers yeah. stock yeah. and oh. hang it on the wall because they're both <laughs> worth about the same thing. <laughs> yeah. No sugarcoated, Dave. Give yeah, it to a strike. Jen, you were going to say something? <laughs> Jen, were you going to add something there? No, no. I was just, oh. I mean, I mean it is sad because, I, I don't know, you guys have maybe talked about this before, but you have to give Eclipse a little bit of credit. Oh, a lot. Yeah, for oh, what, absolutely. Jen? For Jen, for, specifically for what? Well, just for... Um, Propagating a, a whole new business model. Yeah. Right? Well, a new a new category. For sure. A new species. Yeah. yeah. They, species. they 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 yeah, help propagate exactly. a new species of aviation. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, and 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 would there be a, a Mustang, you know, or, or whatever, if if Vern hadn't come out and 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 announced the eclipse for under a, a million dollars, right? And yeah. yeah, yeah. Business wise, not so great, but in terms of injecting the uh, yeah in terms of business. imagination and, and imagination you know, thank you, know, you fi- yeah. finding another niche in yeah, in yeah, this yeah. in this he, market he, yeah he did that um, really well yeah. Fern and did, so, did so it's, it's sad yep yep so well, and, and this this would be um, uh, um, emotionally this would be a much more bitter pill I think for a lot of people in the community, particularly people that monitor these things closely and kind of vest themselves in weighing the the, the validity or invalidity of the the judgments and the ideas and the concepts, you know, great concept. I think that the very light jet would have come along on its own volition because the engine technology was coming along on its own volition. But I do sincerely believe with all my heart that Byrne Rayburn and Eclipse were the ones that drove it front and center way ahead of when it would have arrived without them. Interestingly enough, maturity-wise, I don't think it's getting there a damn bit sooner than it would have without them. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and this would have been so much more. There would have been so many more people crying about the terrible thing that's befallen Eclipse and its people if there had been maybe a couple of jiggers less hubris in their pronouncements and their predictions and uh, their willingness to, uh, to to tell the world how they were going to do it better, faster, cheaper than anybody could possibly do it than it had ever been done because they were doing it in a way that had never been done before. And at the end of the day, when all was said and done, they were right. It still hadn't been done the way they said they were <laughs> trying right. to do it. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. and, and that's a damn shame. But a little less hubris would have made this a whole lot uh, more painful for a lot bigger part of the community. Because right now, there's a whole big bunch of people in this town, Wichita, Kansas, and some of the other airplane centers of the world are sitting there shaking their heads saying, Vern, 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 we knew all along you couldn't do it that way. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, anyways... We're, we'll, we'll continue to follow this and, and try and figure yeah. out exactly what's going to happen as this whole thing shakes. I really, I really hope sure. that there's a way that they come back and still thrive and survive because there's a whole hell of a lot of people well, that's with what I was a say. chunk of chain wrapped up in deposits and jobs at service centers and doing warranty work and folks that have got their airplanes already that don't deserve to go down the tubes with 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 the past right. management. That's right. There's 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 one thing we know, and there's and there's one thing we don't know. One thing we know is that this is not the final chapter. No. The thing we don't know is we don't know how many chapters remain. Yeah. Yep. So, hey, and don't ever say you don't learn things on uh, uncontrolled airspace. We now know that the unit of measure for hubris is jiggers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shout outs shout that, outs that, that measurement uh, um has numerous uses yes <laughs> yes and they and i and i what do you want to bet they're actually related um so the, shout outs what do we got here anybody kind of way yes who's got a shout out i've got one anybody else want to uh, anything you want to call attention to here what I wanted to talk about is uh, uh, from our website, uh, you know, this is just amazing to me. Uh, uh, two or three episodes ago, I started a section in our wiki, which was uh, a listing of uh, airports that had restaurants. And I started it with about a half a dozen, half a dozen different uh, airports with restaurants. And uh, at first, a few uh, listeners discovered it and added theirs. It's now just like blossoming. There are now... Uh, Nearly a hundred restaurants in the list now, uh, spread oh, out cool. over twenty-four states around the United States, as well as one restaurant, actually two or three restaurants in Australia. Um, so uh, it's just really cool. If you're looking for a place to go flying next weekend, uh, you want to check out the list and see if there's a, a, a restaurant uh, nearby you that you could go and check out. That, uh, um, and if you know of some restaurants that aren't on the list, why don't you add them? Because it's kind of fun to to see all these and. Uh, yeah, Jack, I checked that out. I was I was really happy to see two of my very, very favorite uh Which ones were those? Destinations. Uh both Brenham and Fredericksburg. Uh-huh. List, and cool. both have on airport restaurants. Brenham um it's a fifties style diner. Uh, mm-hmm. the waitresses are in are in, you know, poodle skirts and so forth. Fred- this sounds familiar. I think someone sent us some pictures of this a long time yeah, ago. It's, yeah, it's it's great. Uh Fredericksburg, uh, the Hangar Hotel is just sort of a nineteen forties era uh diner and hotel. Both thriving businesses, both uh easy hops from Austin and a really neat, both of them are really neat destinations to take 
take uh, first-time flyers and just get them excited about a general aviation. That's idea. great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Any other shout-outs, anybody? I got one quick one for all those spouses out there looking for the best Christmas present ever. Flying lessons is the gift that has so much long-term potential. I mean, with a pilot's license, how else are you going to experience the wonders of places like Andalusia, Alabama, Gallup Police, Ohio, or Dead Cow International Airport? (laughs) Without a pilot's license, you never know what it's like to live inside an eggshell. Without a pilot's license, you never know what it's like to actually get to your destination when you thought you would at the airport, you thought you would with the bags that you thought you left with. So consider this a Christmas tip, an early shopping possibility to reach out to that one loved one that is still hampered by human mailing tube transportation and give them the flying lessons that they'll always appreciate. This public service announcement is brought to you by the UCAP gift desk. That's all I got to say. Okay. Thanks, Jack. Uh, anything else? No, that was, that was good. Dan. That was that good. Was uh, the uh, Myrtle Beach uh, Aviation FBO, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Uh, Myrtle Beach is a former Air Force base there. Big, huge, long runway, a lot of ramp space. Pull in there uh, Wednesday afternoon. They don't know me from Adam. They got, a, you know, jets and all this other kind of stuff parked around there. And here I am in my measly little old bonanza. And um, treated me like a king. You know, be- before I could get out of the airplane, it was tied down and chalked. Um, <laughs> grabbed, as, I, as I'm unloading bags out of the airplane, there's a ramper grabbing them and throwing them in the back of a van. And I turn around, and, and he's he's got the truck loded and the airplane unloaded. And I was like, oh, well, let me lock up and get out of here. And we go, you know, smoking up to the to the front office there and uh, get my rental car. And um, I tr- next thing I tr- know, I walk out to the rental car, and he's standing there waiting for me, you know, with the key in the rental car. We throw the bags in the rental car. And... Um, I reach in my in my pocket and start pulling out some money to tip him, and he ab- adamantly refuses a tip. Mm-hmm. Adamantly refuses. That sounds great. What's the FBO called again? It's Myrtle Beach Aviation. It's the only FBO on the field. Uh-huh. And what's, uh, the, what's the identifier for? Uh, uh, Mike Yankee Romeo. Sounds great. Sounds great. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it fuel wasn't uh, all that cheap. You know, the, the FBO building is a former base ops for the Air Force Base there. They've got some pictures about how they're going to remodel it and all that. But it's a um, it's a nice you know uh, medium sized city FBO. Um, everybody was very friendly. I was I was favorably impressed. And uh, hats off to them. That's great. Very That's cool. Great. Very hey, cool. Time to stick a fork in this one for sure. Thank you, Jennifer Jen Whitley, for uh, yes. joining us here in the hangar. We hope you'll be able to join us again sometime in the future. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome, Jennifer. Oh, is, you, uh, you were a blast. I enjoyed it. Jennifer is a, a contributing editor for AvWeb, and uh, you can learn more about her and her work at avweb.com and also at her personal website, which is jenniferwhitley.net. That's Jennifer, and then Whitley is, correct me if I'm wrong here, it's W-H-I-T-L-E-Y. Is that correct? That's right. Dot net, jenniferwhitley.net. Thanks a lot. We appreciate you joining us. Jeb Birdside is an aviation journalist. He's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. And you can learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com and also aviationsafetymagazine.com. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer. He's also a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. You can learn more about Dave and his work at kitplanes.com and avbuyer.com slash worldaircraftsales. Or just Google his name and uh, ignore the tennis guy. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm 
I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, and you can learn more about me and my work at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. We want to send out yet again a big thanks to Jeff Scoffrey-Jet Ward for creating our show notes, and also to our many listeners, and particularly to Mike Morgan for the uh, cool show-opening disclaimer clips that we've been using. And don't forget to visit uh, all of us, so you can visit us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, you can check out the UCAP wiki, and that's all at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? I was going to say, go flying, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Live longer. That's right. Well, that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFN. TTFN.